Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there are a lot of stories associated with Christmas time. When I just say stories and Christmas, do any stories come to your mind? Feel free to shout them out. The Grinch You Stole Christmas, yeah. Okay, we'll save that one because that's exactly where I'm going. That was amazing. The second one out the shoot. The Gift of the Magi. What? Oh, some others. Charlie Brown Christmas. Yeah, we saw a piece of that, Linus, the religious part of it. A Christmas Carol? Charles Dickens? I like to read that one. Christmas Story. Yeah, you'll shoot your eye out. You'll shoot your eye out, guys. So, uh, um, <laughs> what's that? Die Hard? <laughs> Bruce Willis? That was filmed at DIA, I believe. Or not DIA, at, at the old Stapleton, wasn't it? My goodness. That's how they blew it up. That's how it got demolished. Oh, I'm just kidding. That would have been cool, though. I should write movie scripts. Yeah, the one that uh, usually doesn't come to my mind, but one that for some reason came to my mind this week was The Gift of the Magi. Anybody familiar with that story? It's a short story by O. Henry. Henry. Was it with an O and a period? Because that would be a weird first name. Just O. (laughs) O, get over here. Um, Does anybody know what the O stands for? I sure don't. Oscar, that's what I was going to guess. O. Henry. He wrote a uh, short story called The Gift of the Magi. And The Gift of the, of the Magi, it's said that he wrote it in a New York City diner, or maybe it was a tavern, actually. And uh, he wrote this story. And I remember when I first came across the story, I, I was pretty young, pretty goofy, pretty stupid. Not much has changed, and, except I'm older. And in this story, I, I, I kind of took it as a, a sad story. I don't know if you thought of it as a sad story. The first time I read it, I felt, oh, that's a sad story. Maybe you're thinking, well, tell me the story. I don't know the story. Well, the gift of the Magi is a story about a young couple who has no money. Anybody ever been there? Some of you are still feeling like you're there. Maybe not the young part, but no money part. You know, It's a young couple that has no money. And the young gal has been saving up money to buy her husband a very special gift. And even after scraping and working, and she only has, I think in the, in the story, it's like $1.87 saved up. And she's a long ways from the amount she needs. She wants to buy this special golden chain for her husband's heirloom golden pocket watch. And it uh, costs like $20, $21. She's a long ways from it. She has this beautiful, long, golden hair. And she realizes that she can cut her hair and sell it to a local hairdresser. So she does this. And she sells her hair to the local hairdresser for $20. And she's able to have the golden chain to give to her husband. Now her husband loves the long golden hair. And he comes home from work that night. And she's just really glad and light in her spirit and excited to give him the gift. And she opens the door to greet her husband and he sees her short hair and he's shocked. Disappointed might even be a word that you would use. 
And to explain what had happened to her hair, she has to give him the gift right then. And so she hands him this gift, and it's the golden chain for the heirloom pocket watch. And he gives her the gift that he had gotten for her. And it's these beautiful um, hair combs made of like tortoise shell. And she says, how did you pay for these? I sold the pocket watch. Now, when I first read that story, when I first came across that story, I thought, how tragic. What a sad story. Did either get a gift? I guess the gal got a good gift because eventually the hair will grow back and she can use the combs. But the heirloom pocket watch that she had worked so hard to get this chain for was gone. And as I reflected on it, as I got married, as I had kids, as my life went on, I realized the beauty of the story. Because they often say, it's not the gift that counts, it's the thought that counts. And when I was younger, I didn't get that. Because, you know, I didn't care what the thoughts were when my mom gave me socks or underwear. I just thought it was a bad gift. And honestly, there was other gifts. I mean, let's move beyond that. Let's just talk about clothes in general. When I was a kid, it was like, please, come on. But is there something to it? That there is something special about the thought in a gift that this story shows us. The self-sacrifice, the ability to sacrifice for the love of another one. I mean, that's really at the heart of the story, the gift of the Magi. And when you think of Christmas, when you think of the birth of Jesus, when you think about God the Father and the Holy Spirit and what was in their brains, and they don't have brains, their spirit, in their mind, when they decided this was the way This was the way to redeem humanity. This was the way to save the world. This was the way we were going to get things done. And it was going to be an act of selfless love. One of the things I have often wondered is, how does this work? Why is that effective? How does this thing work? Why is that effective for our salvation? Have you ever wondered about that? Sometimes when I wonder about that, I'm also quick to kind of suppress the thought because I don't want to doubt. I'm a little afraid sometimes to doubt. But I'm also a little afraid that maybe the answers won't be satisfying at some level for me. Maybe I I won't come across a good enough explanation of how the substitutionary atonement thingy worked out. Those were like 25 cent words, two of them together. That's like 50 cents right there. Substitutionary atonement. But as I've thought about it and pondered about it and really at some interesting, amazing level, that's what the Christmas story is about. It's about the baby Jesus coming to this world to live a life that you and I couldn't live. And the reason I know that is because January 1 is right around the corner. And some of us are goofy enough to continue to try to make New Year's resolutions even though researchers 
scientists, nerds, geeks, everybody who studies this stuff tells us that within the first month, we've all quit, at least the vast majority of folks. By the second month, more have quit. By six months into it, everybody but like the really self-disciplined have quit. And the funny thing is, the self-disciplined people don't need to make New Year's resolutions. It's the rest of us slackers that need them, right? And that's why I look at Jesus and I look at the life he lived because I have made a litany list of New Year's resolutions through my 46 years of life. I think the first, I don't know, 15 or so, I really didn't care. But for the last 30 years or so, I've been making New Year's resolutions. I've learned I need to set the bar lower each year. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to shoot anyone next year. That's my resolution. By the way, I've never shot anyone, so I'm pretty sure I can hold this one. <laughs> Some of you are like, whoa, he shot somebody? No, I didn't shoot anybody. Not even accidentally. That's how low I have to set the bar on New Year's resolutions. And that's how I know that Jesus needed to live a life that I can't live because I can't live the life I want to live. You ever experienced that? Like if I were able to live the life I was wanting to live, my life would be very different than the way my life is. Do you ever feel that? I'd be taller, skinnier, more handsome, really rich, drive nicer cars play music professionally, even though that's a joke. Trumpet even, that'd be fun. I mean, if, if I was self-disciplined, if I had the abilities, if I had the, the, the fortitude, the strength, whatever you want to say, the chutzpah, to live the life I want to live, to make the changes, the choices, the decisions, the, the discipline, the, to make it happen, my life would be different, and so would yours. But somehow... This body, as the Bible calls it, this body of sin and death, <laughs> this body of decay and stupidity is another way of putting it for me. This body that just breaks down and fails and, and you can't control it always. You can't make it do what you want it to do. You can't eat barbecue every day and be, you know, skinny. At least not me. I can't even eat barbecue once a month and be skinny. This body makes it hard to live the life I want to live, the way I want to live it. And yet Jesus came and lived this life that I want to live so desperately. Now, in my heart of hearts, I may not think I want to live the life that Jesus lived, but think about the kind of town that would exist if we all lived the way that Jesus lived. And then think about the town we do live in. There's a couple of lists in Colossians. I didn't put it on the screen or anything, but there's a couple of lists in Colossians. One is a sin list. Paul really likes sin lists. He makes these sin lists out. And that's what most people think the Bible is, is a bunch of lists about do not do these things. And Paul gives this list. You know, don't live in sexual immorality. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't be nasty. Don't be mean. Don't be drunkards. Don't be immoral. Blah, 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 blah. He's got this long, terrible, nasty, ugly list. And if we all lived in that town... Let me correct that. Since we all live in that town, we know what that looks like. We know what that feels like. Then he goes on and he creates another list in chapter 3, and I think this is verses 12 and following or so. And he says, 
But since you are God's chosen people, clothe yourselves now. Close yourselves with love. Close yourselves with kindness, patience. It's not quite the fruits of the Spirit that we get in Galatians, but it's a similar list to the fruit of the Spirit that we get in Galatians. And one of the words he uses in the Greek, it's actually large-heartedness. We translate it patience. Uh, Another way to translate it was put up with anything. Imagine if we lived in that world, the world that put up with anything in that town. And if you look at these two lists, you'd think, boy, I'd rather live in the second town than the first town. The first town of sinfulness, stealing, hatred, anger. The second list, love, kindness, joy. I think we'd all pick the second one. Now, some of you are, you know, you're rebels at heart, and you're like, no, the first town, you can do whatever you want. That'd be way more fun. I get that. I understand that. The law feels, you know, constricting. Can't do certain things you want to do. But Jesus came, and he did the second town living. He he lived that out. He lived a, a perfect, sinless life. A life where he never had to say, oops, sorry. A life where he never had to ask for forgiveness. I mean, come on, men. Wouldn't you love that opportunity with your wife somehow? I mean, I know many of us don't ask a wife for forgiveness, but you know in your heart of hearts you should ask your wife for forgiveness. And Jesus never had to ask his mom, his kid brother, his kid sisters, dad, nobody for forgiveness. That's the life he came and lived. And it's just astonishing that he pulled that off. It's amazing. It's even a more amazing feat than dying, if you think about it. Because we're all going to die. I mean, the manner in which he died was pretty gruesome, grotesque, horrific. It wasn't out of the ordinary. The part that was out of the ordinary was that he let them kill him. In the scriptures, it says that I lay down my life. I do not, no one takes it from me. You and I, we can have our lives taken from us. We don't have a choice in the matter. We can't just dictate, no, not today, not going to happen. The son of man, Jesus, he he decided this is the day it's going to happen. He orchestrated the events around his death. It happened at the right time, at the time that was intended. So that is one spectacular aspect of his death. But the really amazing piece of the story happens three months from today, people. I've already started planning. Because Easter is March 27th, 2016. Three months from today. And that's the amazing piece of the story. Because Jesus got up out of death, (laughs) kicked death's teeth in and walked out of a grave. This is where the gift of Christ becomes insanely profound to us. This is where the gift of receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives becomes insanely awesome. And there's a little known passage, actually it's well known probably, but it's a Christmassy passage and it's one that we never read. 
Christmas time, but I want to do that today. It's in Titus chapter 2. And the words will be on the screen. Titus writes this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's a lot in that passage. It packs a punch. Did you hear some of the things that were said in there? Let me get it in my Bible so I can refer to it a little better. For the grace of God has appeared. Past tense. Specific incident in Paul's mind. What do you think it is? I would imagine it's Jesus first appearing. Jesus coming to earth. For the grace of God has appeared. And what did God's grace do when it first appeared? It brought salvation for all people. For all people. This wasn't expected. They just thought it was for Jewish people. But Jesus blew the doors off that notion and made it for all the people. Which is a really good thing because none of us are Jewish. He brought salvation. And then verse 12. And this is the New Year's resolution piece of the Bible. Training us. Training us. You ever think of your Christian walk as training? When I think of training, I think of exertion. I think of personal trainers. I think of gymnasiums and sweat. I think of the rack. I think of muscle teardown and buildup. I think of correct diets and workout plans. I think of Trace going into the Marines and training. I don't think of church. Do you think of church when you think of training? take that as a no but paul says training us what trains us it's the grace of god grace of god training us what to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the age to come oh wait a minute whoa whoa present age I wish it said age to come, don't you? You ever read the Bible the way you want it to read? Because in the age to come, then we're off the hook right now. I don't have to train. I don't have to live a life that renounces ungodliness. I don't have to say no to worldly passions. What are the other things he says? Self-control? Oh, brother. Godly? Too bad he didn't say in the age to come. Here's the kicker. That's going to be true of you in the age to come. 
How is it going to be true of you in the age to come? Because of God's grace. So why should it be true of you now in the current age? Because of God's grace. It's training you for that. See how that works? No, you didn't see it. That's okay. Later at lunch, because the Broncos aren't playing, you'll have all this time this afternoon to think about stuff. It's going to jump on you like a big lion stalking you. You'll be like, oh, that's what he meant. God's grace is what's going to make you these things godly, self-controlled, saying no to things in the world to come. God's grace is training you in this present age to be godly, to say no to worldly passions, to be self-controlled now. God's grace, doing both. In God's mind, in God's economy, in God's way of thinking about these things, there's no difference between now and then and you. Because his grace is what's doing it. Now, when I think of grace, I don't think of training. So help me understand that piece. When I think of grace, I don't think of training, right? Do you think of training and grace being synonymous, working together? Or do you think of these things as opposites? Because when I have a grace day on my diet plan, when I have a grace day on my workout schedule, when I have a grace day, what do I mean? I ate whatever I wanted. Christmas was a grace day for most of us. Yesterday was a grace day for most of us. Today, going to be, you know, this whole week is a grace week because January 1's coming up and then we can get self-controlled and start training. We have this notion that grace and training aren't in the same arena. They're not in the same zip code. They're two different entities completely, grace and training. But Paul here in the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, the grace of God has appeared. Doing what? Bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness. It's doing those things. Let me suggest to you that your salvation is completely by God's grace. And your sanctification, your training in ungodliness, no, not in ungodliness. Let me I need to read that right because that could be wrong. Training us to renounce ungodliness. See, some of you were like, oh, training in ungodliness. I got that down. Mm-hmm. Training us to renounce ungodliness, your sanctification, your becoming more like Jesus is also a function of grace. That's why I keep getting after you about, don't say try. It's like Yoda from Star Wars. There's no try. It's like, what are you talking about? Of course there's try. Now, I don't don't know if any of us get this. I don't even know if I get this. I don't know if I completely understand this. I think at some level this is a mystery because there's part of me that I am so taught, trained to think of training as training. Aren't you trained to think of training as training? I don't think of training as grace. I don't think of training as something that happens to me. I think of training as something I do. 
But somehow, in how God is thinking about this, structuring all this, making this happen, they go hand in hand somehow. If we keep reading, we can maybe get some more insights. Waiting. Do you see all the things that are going on to us? There's a bringing of salvation, there's a training, and there's a waiting. What are we waiting for? Our blessed hope. What is that? Let's keep reading. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. So in between, there's this event that happened. The, Jesus has appeared. What did he do? Bringing salvation. What else is going on? For those he brought salvation to, now there's this training of renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and self-control. And now we're waiting for what? For Jesus to come back. Waiting for Jesus to return. Do you see the sandwich there? Jesus appeared. All this stuff happens. Jesus appears again. It's like the bread on the sandwich. It's a big Dagwood sandwich, by the way. It's got a lot of stuff, a lot of meat in there. Your whole life happens in between. Waiting. Who gave himself for us. This is the gift part. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. This is an interesting word. It can also be translated ransom. You see, when I was asking about atonement theory earlier, and I oftentimes freak out and go, oh, I don't know if I should think about atonement theory very much because there's brilliant people who have tried to figure it out for millennia. And I can't say I have it all figured out. But one of the things that I think happened in Jesus' life and his death was best captured by a writer named C.S. Lewis in a children's book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't read that book, it's a great Christmas book, by the way. It didn't come up in our discussion. In that book, there's a traitor. His name's Edmund. And Edmund is a traitor. He has eaten a treat by the white witch. He has gone over to the dark side. And according to the laws of this land, Narnia, any traitor is the white witch's property, hers. She owns them. There's nothing that can be done about this, apparently. Aslan, the great lion, does not argue with the white witch about this. It's like, yeah, you're right. Any traitor is yours. In fact, in our day and age, it'd be like, any sinner is yours, Satan. Any rebel, any person who rebelled against God at any moment, at any time in their lives is yours, Satan. And Jesus doesn't argue this point. And so there's this huge dilemma in the book. And what happens? Aslan the lion goes to the white witch and her minions. And he makes a deal. He cuts a deal with her. He says, I will give my life for Edmund. I will give my life for Edmund. I will give my life for the traitors. You can have me instead of the traitors. 
Because it it's not just Edmund, it's, it's all of the traitors. And the White Witch, I mean, if you had the opportunity to kill the great lion, which would you take? Some punk kid who ate your Turkish delight? Who was a traitor? Or would you kill the great lion? Your mortal enemy. And so the witch kills the lion. But unbeknownst to her, there was a what C.S. Lewis calls a deeper magic at work. And the magic was self-sacrificial love trumps acts of hatred and evil. Self-sacrificial love destroys the work of evil. And I think that's one of the best pictures for what Jesus did on the cross. He went to Satan and his minions. He, he went to the powers of evil and he said, you're right, Steve's blood is yours. Steve is yours because he's a sinner. He's a traitor to me. But my offer is this. You can have Steve and all the other yahoos like him or you can have me. You can kill me, says Jesus. And Satan goes, that's not a tough choice. He took Jesus. But Satan didn't know the whole story. Satan didn't understand that Jesus' act of sacrificial, self-giving love would trump, would destroy, would bring about the end of Satan's reign and evil. He ransomed me. He ransomed those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He bought you at a price. It was his blood. He redeemed you. He snatched you. He, he tricked Satan and grabbed you. That's <laughs> what he did. I often wonder how to respond when I've been given an amazing gift. You ever been given just a jaw-dropping gift? Some, and it doesn't even have to be expensive or extravagant. Could you imagine that young couple when he came home and there's that golden chain I'm sure it's just a jaw dropping gift because he's like oh my gosh what she sacrificed for this and when somebody sacrifices for you in such a jaw dropping amazing way how do you want to respond you see that's the beauty of this Christmas if you've come to know Jesus Christ then when you think of the great gift God has given to make you his. When you think of the great gift that he gave Jesus to make you his, then what can you give back? See, the gift that we give to him is to display his power at work in our lives. That's the gift we give back to allow God's grace to train us, to quit being a rebel to give in, to cry uncle, uncle Jesus, if you have to say, I submit, I give up, I will follow you. That's the gift we give back. So may we be a people in 2016 that give back to Christ who's given us his all. May we be people who give our lives to him. That we show him off by the power that's in work in us. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Christmas story, for the joy it brings our hearts. We thank you for kids and the joy and the excitement it brings to them. We thank you so much for what Jesus accomplished for us. Forgive us when we take it for granted, like it's a doormat of grace to wipe our feet on. Help us to read passages like this in Titus and see all that's transpired and all that is going on and all that we are being trained in and waiting for. And Father, we pray like at the end of the book of Revelation where we say, Lord Jesus, come soon so that our training and our waiting will be over and we will be renewed and restored and glorified and made like you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you train in renouncing ungodliness, in saying no to worldly passions, in being self-controlled. How? By God's grace. Amen.